Hello, dear human. Welcome to another episode of Emerge. In this episode, I'll be speaking once more with Hansi Freinacht. In this part two of our two-part conversation, we go deep into the six strategies of a metamodern politics. And this is quite exciting. It's actually the first time that these six politics have been shared publicly. Uh, they will be the, the uh, topic of Hansi's next book, but this is kind of like breaking news or a scoop for Emerge, which is fun. Uh, <laughs> in any case, um, it's a great conversation. I'm really excited to share it with you. Um, and before we dive into that, although you can skip ahead, that's your prerogative, a couple pieces of housekeeping. The first of which is that I've begun a newsletter. I call it Infinite Clues as an allusion to the idea of an infinite game from the book Finite and Infinite Games. And it's a collection of, of cool digital artifacts that I come across in the pursuit of my various <laughs> work, um, uh, things I do for work. Uh, and they're all things that exist at the intersection points of culture, technology, politics, and spirit. And so if you enjoy the conversations that I have on this show, you'll likely enjoy the content and uh, uh, ideas that I'll be sharing in that newsletter. So I encourage you to, to sign up. I'll be releasing the first uh, issue this week. Uh, and you can sign up by going into the show notes or by going to my Twitter feed, or by going to the website emerge.is. The other piece of housekeeping is that for this episode, I'm going to be experimenting with a new way of doing show notes. Uh, it's part of um, uh, Tiago Forte's building a second brain methodology, but essentially um, I take notes on these conversations as part of producing them. And also Ethan, uh, my conversational partner in the Making Sense episodes, often takes notes too. And so I'm going to share with you all of the notes that I take, including highlights from the book, if there's a book that the episode is based on, just to give you a kind of deeper cut if you want it. And so you can, again, look in the show notes. There'll be a link to an Evernote that will have links to other Evernote files. And um, yeah, feel free to bop around in there and, and hopefully it will kind of deepen your learning uh, as a result of uh, us sharing our learning. And we can kind of learn together in a, in a deeper and more profound way. Okay. So without further ado, please enjoy this second part of our two-part conversation with Hansi Freinacht, author of The Listening Society. Okay. Hello, Hansi. Welcome back to your second episode on Emerge. And thank you, Daniel. So this in this episode, um, we're going to be spending time really talking 
on a more tactical or strategic level than we did in the previous episode. In this episode, we're going to be diving into what what you refer to as the six new forms of politics that emerge out of this kind of metamodern political theory. And so maybe if you would, Hansi, just sort of set us up, contextualize what are these new forms of politics, where do they arise from, and, and why are they needed? Yeah, so uh, thank you for asking. So the first thing to note, uh, you said tactical and strategic. Uh, I would like to zoom in on which one of these things uh, we're talking about. We're talking more more strategic. There's also mm-hmm. a, a large tactical um a large tactical framework of metamodern politics. How do you infect, as it were, the non-metamodern politics with a metamodern virus? Um, But that discussion begins where this one ends. Once you have Mm. an overview of the six uh, views of the six forms of politics, then you, and you see the strategic map and you see where you want to go. And then you can, learn the moves as it were and practice the moves and practice the the arts of of uh, um of politics i suppose of how to get there hmm. and um and all of that has to do with with um very very subtle perspective takings and very very subtle applications of both and thinking and network thinking and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, mm-hmm. So we might put that aside, the the tactical, and uh, I would love mm-hmm. to talk to you about another time. So mm-hmm. if we specifically look at the strategic side and we look at what is metamodern politics. So metamodern politics then fundamentally is that you update the whole field of the political so the idea of mm. what politics is is updated it's so mm. if you ask any person down the street today wh- what is politics about they would say something well it's about uh, uh organizing society organizing resources um and there will be things that would feel included in the political realm and a lot of things that just wouldn't be reflected upon as political and as politics and as we can see that during the 20th century, for instance, uh, there has actually been a substantial expansion of what is thought of as political. For instance, you see um, you see an expansion of um, of environmental politics, and it's perhaps the best example. If you go a hundred years back, there is no such thing really as as environmental politics. You mm. have uh, well. I suppose you had a uh, you had a ministry of forestry, or I don't remember the exact mm. uh, correct term, uh, the Department of Forestry, maybe in in the U.S. back in the 1900s uh, or in the 19th century already in the 1800s. Um, but most, uh, but of course, they didn't really talk about the environment at large, and they didn't really have an idea right. about the environmental systems, and it simply wasn't a political issue, and. As you know, there was right. in the la- in the second half of the 20th century, there was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and there was uh, and there was uh, the the report of, by the Club of Rome, the Limits to Growth, as it's called, and then there was the Grundtvig uh, 
commission, uh, which also talked about sustainability. And this word sustainability, as late as in the 80s and the 90s, became a thing and became a political mm-hmm. uh, became a political weapon. You could say, I guess you could say. Um, and before that, it simply wouldn't make sense to in a in in a political context to talk right. about these things. So by and large, you could see that environmental politics has grown and has become a thing in all of these different countries. And today, all countries more or less have some kind of environmental policy mm-hmm. or as some kind of environmental regulation and they think in these terms. So it has become part of the late modern system and has grown, of course, from a need um, and a host of needs, um, but it has also grown from an awareness, from a certain kind of science that has uh, infected and uh, saturated the political realm and uh, mm. the, the political discourse. So do we seriously believe at this point in history that no more such political forms of political governance will ever be added to the list. Mm. Do we believe that we mm. now have discovered the ultimate form of governance? Uh, have we mm. have we parched out all of the all of the significant areas of life and existence and the universe that need to be governed, that need to be organized by means of democratic mm. deliberation and uh, and um, uh, cooperation over time and, and conscious plans, and of course, the my answer is, and many with me is that of course not. There are <clears throat> forms of development that we haven't yet begun to see as forms of development that are in the background, uh, of in the back of our minds or in the back of our cultural understanding of the world. And we haven't yet put them out there to be explicitly related to. Mm. So um, um, I suggest then that there are six such new forms of politics. And they must be explored each on their own. And they must come in a certain, in a certain order also. Mm. But they together form um, a pattern. And these six forms of politics together form a pattern that constitutes the metamodern layer of governance or politics. So it will take a long time, well, let's say 80 years or 100 years, Hmm. to really chisel out and cultivate all of these different forms of politics. And you have to do them one by one, and you have to increase their their uh, um, you have to increase their um, th- th- their substance, I guess, and their substantiality over time. Right. So at first, they will be vague and incoherent, and then you will find ways to implement them, you will find ways to operationalize them, you will find ways that they connect with other things, you will find how you build institutions around them, how you uh, how you uh, 
work with them. And, um, and some of them are more difficult than others, and some are more complex and, uh, and more fraught with risks and contradictions mm-hmm. than others. So we're going to be- begin from the simplest one, and we're going to work our ways to the mo- our way to the most radical one and the most controversial mm-hmm. one. So in order of appearance, then, uh, what we're talking about is democratization politics. That's the first one. Politics of democratization. Democracy viewed as a process. The second one is Gemeinschaft politics. We'll get back to that word, but it means something like community or fellowship or friendship or um, togetherness or relationships. Politics mm. of relationships, politics of, incre- of improving human relationships. And the third one is politics or existential politics, politics of existence, politics of our inner development. And the fourth one is empirical politics. And um, uh, the fifth one is emancipation politics. So the fourth one is empirical politics, meaning politics of science. And the fifth one is emancipation politics, politics of freedom, politics of, of uh, um, well, emancipation, of uh, defending the individual from transgressions that all of these new forms of politics can can create at subtler levels. And then mm. the sixth one is politics of theory or politics of narratives. So politics about the stories of the world. Um, and in a way, once we get to the sixth one, and this one is explored and tried and, and uh, this, uh, this area or this territory is traversed, we will have gotten to a metamodern society. So it will be a society that is self-aware of its own culture or self-aware of its own narratives or its own, um, or its own ways of constructing social reality, self-aware of, its, of the social construction of reality. And of course, politics, or I mean politics of theory, go together with politics, empirical politics. You can't have empirical science without having a theory behind it, a theory about mm-hmm. what you're doing and why. So, th- so that's the, the, the overall pattern. And I realize that's more than if we ask the, the, the listener to repeat what I just said, it would be difficult. So we're going to have to go through them one by one. Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, we will do a relatively sketchy work of it today. Um, you can read the details in, in uh, uh, the upcoming book, Nordic Ideology. Beautiful. So, um, yeah, that would be the introduction. These are the six forms. They're uh, democratization politics, Gemeinschaft politics, existential politics, empirical politics, emancipation politics, and politics of theory. Wonderful. Thank you, Hansi. And... Um... Uh, is it the case that they are kind of linear, like you said? So we 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 should start there, and therefore with democratization politics. Yes. Yes, I mean linear uh, is uh, it might not be the right term. It's simply that um, if we start in the wrong end of the spectrum, uh, they uh, they 
the counter forces for this kind of political uh, for this kind of political improvement or or uh, expansion mm-hmm. wouldn't be there the necessary counter forces so we go from the least mm. controversial and dangerous one to the most controversial and dangerous one and uh, well we'll get mm. back to the logic between behind that um so if you look at uh, the first one then democratization politics uh, let's let's begin with the basics of of the idea so the basic idea is Look at history. What do you see in terms of the state, in terms of governance? You see a gradual development of the forms of governance. You see a gradual development of the forms of participation in public life. You see a growth of what might be called the civil sphere and the public sphere. You see a growth of checks and balances you see growth of constitutions and rights of citizens. You see, um, well, uh, new balances showing up between uh, between what Montesquieu called uh, uh, governing power or executive power and uh, and uh, judging power and uh, and uh, the lawgiver. The the Legis- legislative power. So these three powers uh, have uh, have formally not been um, separated, and they have become more and more separated, and they have balanced one another, and you have had more and more complex ways mm-hmm. of governance. Uh, but nevertheless, what you see also in history is that you can uh, there are distinguishable stages within this growth of governance. So uh, around the early 20th century, you had um, you had um, uh, the women's suffrage in most Western countries, for instance. And before that, in the 19th century, you had no women's suffrage in all of the countries. And before that, you had serfdom, which wasn't abolished. And you had, and before that, you didn't even have the estates, uh, the the nobility, and and then. The, the people or the the bourgeois in, in quotation marks uh, and and the church. Uh, so you see, even though there are there there is um, there is a continuous development, the this development stops at stations and stay there stays there train stations as it were and stays there for a long time. And if you look a hundred years back or so or to 1920 or or thereabout when uh, women gain suffrage, you will recognize that our political system of today is roughly the same as mm-hmm. 100 years ago. So basically, we have been at the same station for a long time. And this is visible, especially perhaps in countries such as the US, which has an, an old and proud democracy, but perhaps uh, also a somewhat uh, aged one, and uh, one that isn't aging very well. Uh, but it's it's not unique to the U, to the United States. It's uh, it's uh, really a, a recurring pattern in in, in all in, in all late democ- all, all late modern democracies that you see uh, a certain dysfunctionality of the system or of the mm-hmm. democratic system itself. So what democratic democratization politics does is that it says let's 
make democracy itself into a developmental project. Let's make it something that can be continuously worked upon and improved upon. That's the fundamental idea. And I can get back to some to some details about how that works. Uh, do, do you have any thoughts so far, Daniel? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it occurs to me that on the one hand, we're already doing this, as you say, but that there's a kind of level of uh, uh, intentional conscientiousness that it sounds like you're inviting to be brought yes. to bear into this natural yeah. evolutionary process. Is that a way of understanding yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, naturally, uh, from time to time, there are there are uh, amendments to the constitution or there are constitutional changes that uh, if you look at a lot of countries have changed from bicameral systems to unicameral systems. And uh, you can see in the in the US you have uh, even changes uh, well amendments to the to the constitution um and you have you you see the expansion of some uh, of some some of the human rights uh, people will will be granted the right to uh, to for instance education and things like these yeah and, and um, i mean what what occurs to me or what, what strikes me is that in the context of say the united states there even this is quite radical right like uh, uh there are people who kind of are conservatives in the sense that they think that there was some kind of perfect, pristine uh, basis for our current democratic system and that we want to just keep going back to that sort of uh, uh, better previous uh, uh, stage. Mm. And so even the acknowledgement that, that evolution is already happening and that, hey, perhaps we should do it quite intentionally would be a, a, a mm. very large shift in the context of at least American politics. I suppose. I mean, American politics, especially, is, is uh, has very strong constitutionalism, and for many reasons, also a kind of religious constitutionalism, a kind of civic religion around yes. it. Uh, you have a similar pattern, actually, in some other countries, like Denmark. Also, has this uh, reverence of, of its constitution. Um, but uh, what democratization politics then would be in, let's say. A country like France or, or Sweden or the UK would be, it would be um, a kind of, it would demand of all political parties, uh, once this idea takes roots, uh, the public will demand of all parties that they state how they want to develop democracy. Do they want to do so by means of uh, digitalization of the democratic? Uh, uh, feedback processes or the information systems that govern that constitute mm -hmm. governance. Do they want to um, do they want to increase participatory uh, pathways for citizens into uh, engaging with with uh, with public uh, office, or do they want to uh, have more deliberate deliberative or uh, discussion panels which mm -hmm. which uh, draw upon uh, which draw upon um, the, the random citizens who don't have vested interests and in, to discuss certain areas or topics, or do they want to um, find ways of increasing uh, the quality of representative ballots uh, that uh, mm -hmm. one, uh, well, so uh, how the election system works, for instance. Uh, a lot of countries have different election systems, and these all have dynamics that play out very, very differently. And as things are today, um, it's very, very diff difficult for almost any country to 
develop its ballot system, its voting system. And uh, we get stuck pretty much in all countries uh, these days on, on, on the limitations of whatever ballot system we happen to have. So, um, yes. um, whereas, you know, uh, political researchers and, and, and uh, mathematical theorists and so forth have, have, um, have proposed not any number of ballot systems that would have different dynamics and create different forms of fairness, but there is no serious debate anywhere in the world around which ballot system would be the best uh, for this particular society or why. Um, so, uh, well, or, or another question that might show up in this context would be how to improve democratic culture generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry, Daniel. What, what did you want to say? Well, just just to say, um, just to name that actually right now, Maine in the U.S. Uh, it has passed a ranked choice voting law, which actually... Oh. Uh, mm-hmm significantly changes the way that their ballots are drawn and the votes are tabulated. And so mm. that's, I think, a very real world example here in the US of this form of politics. And it's what's fascinating to me is that uh, both parties raged against this being passed. And it was only passed by, you know, hardcore groundswell of support, outside funding, you know, of these organizations. But both the Democrats and the Republicans dug their feet in, tried to sue tried to say it was unconstitutional. And so it's perhaps a kind of flashpoint of the the sorts of of, of tensions that might arise as this form of politics is pursued, right? Yeah. And, and in fact, I think, you know, one way we might, at least in the US, is if both parties don't like something, that might be an indication that it's a, it, it might mm-hmm. be a good thing to, to look into. <laughs> uh, it, it might, I suppose. And uh, most... Uh, most importantly, I, uh, this, like you say, uh, democratization politics is itself a difficult thing to make happen because uh, the vested interests and the powers that be are always going to have interests in, in the status quo. So, um, so for instance, you, it's very difficult to get uh, politicians in the parliament to reduce the number of parliamentarians for obvious reasons. Um, but what can be done then is because there is a fatigue within the population at large uh, and now we're getting into the tactical side so uh, so let's let's do a little preamble for that one on on, on this topic um, what uh, what the public at large feels is that uh, pub- Democratic debates or the the public discourse in general has become more and more devoid of meaning. Has become uh, mm. well that at least in countries like uh, let's say Sweden, there is a big well there isn't a very big difference between the left and the right. Maybe if you go to the most right wing party and the most left wing party, but if you look at the center left and the center right, if you choose one or the other, you'll get roughly the same results. And um, because of that, you have, um, well, a kind of pseudo debate that goes on where the where the parties don't really represent the interests of wide, well-defined groups, and the public then grows tired of their mm. politicians. And you see, uh, well, just a general fatigue with politicians and politics, and and disbelief in them in general uh, across all countries and across yes. all, all classes and populations as. Um, and whatever party then would begin to lift these issues, would begin to lift that we are the party of improving this democratic debate, 
they could actually speak to the public in uh, in doing so that like we we have seen in in Maine as you as you said that the, there was a public uprising against yes. not against uh not against the establishment in general but against the the quality of the public discourse then um or certain mm-hmm. properties of the public discourse and of the political system and uh, that in itself can be a source to power is my point yes absolutely yeah and i think it sounds like the the important distinction for folks listening is between uh policy objectives and system change objectives is that one way of kind of putting this this the, the form of two politics? things really really feed into one another but fundamentally yes uh, something like that um we should probably get on yeah let's move on to the second and i think i would encourage people listening to like with the thing in maine like look around and i know you know i pay more attention to the united states this form of politics is actually rising and becoming more relevant in our nation and so this is both something that we're talking about it's also just a, a kind of evolutionary trajectory we seem to be in whether or not we're talking about it so just you know this is another way to pay attention to what's already happening, which I think is really interesting that that is the case. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, so let's go on to two. number let's, two. Uh, let's take a look at that one. That would be Gemeinschaft politics. So first of all, uh, we should look at the word Gemeinschaft. So Gemeinschaft uh, within yes. the German language means something like society or community. Um, and unfortunately, the, the reason we use the the german word is that the the there isn't a perfect english translation and within sociology then if you go back to uh um uh, sociologists in the 19th century a classical one called uh, ferdinand tunis ferdinand tunis he uh he talked about there is a difference between gesellschaft and gemeinschaft and gesellschaft then being society as in the formal regulations and roles and relations of society. And then there is all, all of that soft, mushy, informal stuff. And that is Gemeinschaft. And um, mm. these two things are quite distinct from one another, are quite different, and they work by different logics, and they, uh, and they um, well, uh, they govern different form, different parts of life. Nevertheless, they influence one another, and both are very, very, very real. And if you want to understand any society, you have to understand mm. any modern society where these things are differentiated. You have to understand both the Gesellschaft part and the Gemeinschaft part. And the Gemeinschaft part would be something like, well, cultural stuff, or something like, well, if you walk down the street, what are the norms for how you talk to people, for how you relate to somebody? What's the likelihood you'll help a stranger in, in need or something like that? And, um, well, how many friends do you have? How big is your network? How much trust is there in, within your network? Uh, what, what, uh, how do you relate between the genders, for instance? How do you relate between different ethnicities? Formally, you're both citizens of... Uh, let's say the United States, but one is black and the other is Muslim. And the third is, is uh, or Muslim isn't uh, an ethnicity, but well, you, you understand. Uh, you have different 
different categories of people and they relate to one another beyond what what is formally there and all of these things also affect of course the formal relations Mm. so uh, so obviously you'll be a bit differently treated by the justice systems if you're black for instance or caribbean so um um what you uh what you get at here is there is a huge potential for development of culture itself and of the informal relations. And we normally don't think of them as political. Of course, this is a very controversial statement to make. Should in the first should our informal relationships and our everyday life be a political question in the first place? Should it have anything to do with politicians and the long fingers mm. of government and, and anything like that? And it, things can very easily get very creepy mm. if, uh, if people want to shape, well, let's mm-hmm. say our gender relationships and our sexual identities and whatnot. That being said, though, there is no denial that the mm. politics of any society are going to affect these relationships. So if you look at a society like Sweden and you look at a society like uh, the United States, there's a, there is a clear difference in terms of in, in Sweden, there is more emphasis on sexual education, for instance. And uh, within sexual education, there will be a liberal a liberal vision of society at large and of, let's say, homosexuality and uh, transgender rights and uh, equality between the sexes. And that will affect millions of real relationships that play out within everyday life. And those relationships will in in turn affect family creation patterns or family establishment patterns and those will uh, family establishment patterns will affect the economy and the economy will affect mm-hmm. politics so we can't really get away from the fact that gemeinschaft is a thing and it's going to have different shapes and forms so mm-hmm. the argument of gemeinschaft mm-hmm. politics is that these these issues shouldn't be off the table. They should be consciously and deliberately and explicitly related to by all political parties. So once this idea becomes established and once there are institutions to to guide it, there there are already many, but they don't uh, look at themselves that way. I mean, there's social work, there is... uh, sexual education in school. There are mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of things that have to do with um, in handling ethnic conflicts and, and uh, the education of the police and so forth. Um, all of these things together constitute Gemeinschaft politics. How do you increase the quality of informal human relationships throughout society? That's the, that's the guiding question. And uh, well, I don't know if it's beautiful. It, it can be very easily be be terrifying and scary. Uh, but I think mm-hmm. once you twist it and turn it in your head uh, enough enough times, you you see that there is there's an inescapability to the question. Uh, 
uh, we can leave it at that and have no conscious politics, mm -hmm. but it will still be affected by the very politics that we that we uh, that that are uh, promulgated or. All, 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 by all the policies and all the practices and all the institutions and all the bureaucracies, they will still affect um, ethnic relations, for instance. So we might as well have a conscious debate about it and get the best possible science based on behavioral sciences, uh, the social sciences and, and psychology and experimental psychology and anything we can get our hands on. And the best... Uh, the best transdisciplinary view that we can get of society and try to improve these relationships. If I could, I just, I'm just curious to, to hear a little bit more, like the question itself, how do we increase the quality of informal human relationships throughout society? Um, that itself seems to be a beautiful question because I don't, I don't, I don't see how increasing the quality, yeah. if that's yeah. your, if that's yeah. your litmus, like what, yeah. how is that scary? Uh, one of my political opponent has another idea of what this p quality of relationships would mean, and they use it to uh, uh, to let's say uh, make people more tightly knit and less individualistic, for instance, or they use it to uh, uh, make people conform to certain norms and uh, and. Uh, pressure people to into closer relationships and uh, making people feel subtly suffocated, for instance. So you, you might ch you might subtly change mm. a lot of things within, let's say, uh, 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 K twelve education. And um, uh, well, let's say five graders they they play different social games, and uh, these social games are going to uh, or, or uh, are going to reinforce positive. Uh, positive behaviors and and help them with developing developing uh, perspective taking so but what if those are uh, incorrectly mm -hmm. designed or or just uh, insensitively designed and they will make some some fifth graders feel very much at home and others feel subtly manipulated and they can't really tell what ha what's been done to them because it's been done to them over their heads uh, well mm. that's of course would mm. be a very a very creepy development and would uh, spur all sorts of subtle oppressions or uh, subtle pathologies that would be very difficult to account for. We'll get back to all of this, uh, to, to how mm. to, I mean, if there is such a thing as development in politics, we can see that politics since many hundred years ago has become more and more intimate. If you go to the let's say the 1200s, most people would be farmers and they wouldn't have anything to do with uh, public office and public office would have very little to do with, with them. They would show up once a year and collect some taxes and then leave you alone. Uh, but if you look at uh, your, sli your mm. life and mine, we have been affected by so many decisions by people we never met and maybe people who lived before we did that it's it's just mind-boggling that there is an intimacy of power an intimacy of control that is just unprecedented so mm -hmm. this increasing intimacy of control is on one thing is on one hand necessary for us to coordinate subtler and subtler actions and feelings and emotions and identities and thoughts of millions of people in complex societies who live in tightly knit 
societies and tight-knit economies. But on the other hand, um, it also means that whenever things go wrong, they go very wrong and they become very, very oppressive and very totalitarian. So if you take any any modern country mm-hmm. and uh, just at the level of plain modernism and you put it in the hands of a manipulative uh, uh, dictator, well, obviously the dictator isn't necessarily so much worse than a medieval king, but the fact that he or she owns such a powerful uh, machinery for manipulating the whole population makes the whole thing so much more nightmarish. So what you see then is that with the development, uh, with increase of um, of the intimacy of control, you also need a deeper and deeper democratic legitimacy. So only if we have developed mm. a powerful enough democratic governance where these things are open, these processes are open, transparent, shared in the public interest, and uh, talked about, and all all perspectives are taken into account, and all all, um, all hurt emotions are come to the fore, and and so forth. Only if we have a very very developed democratic tools can we with any claim to legitimacy develop uh, a much more profound and intimate gemeinschaft politics hmm. yeah one thing that that comes up for me too is is again if we look in the world an example perhaps of this happening is like the chinese social credit system which is being built without the basis of a democratic governance and is doing very very creepy things to people you know, like taking uh, a facial recognition of jaywalkers and then putting their faces up before movies in order to shame them and all these just scary, dystopic kind of authoritarian technological state uh, things that are also, though, pro- reweaving the social fabric on the informal level of China. So, uh, I, I uh, completely agree. I, I think a lot about this development. and um, and. This is one of the main examples. Like, if if there is one battle for the human soul today, it is. Well, unfortunately, China may be our best hope for for a global leadership on on the climate change, um, and for many other reasons, China may be the emergent power, the emergent power in the world, um, the emerging great power even a superpower and for for this reason there is no more important question than the question of democracy in china and democracy in china probably cannot happen according to the developmental lines of western countries they're going to have to go directly to a co-developmental politics or a metamodern politics of the kind that i speak of which is a very very dangerous step to take given that uh, you mm. haven't got the the prerequisites in terms of democratic culture in a public sphere. So uh, it, it thinks can, well, China itself is epitomizes this fundamental, um, this fundamental pattern that we see that, yes, you have an increasing intimacy of control, but then without democratic legitimacy, it's going to become tyrannical and tyrannical in ways that even George Orwell couldn't have imagined. Okay. That's very clear to me. And, and um, yeah, I, th- I feel like we could have probably 
multiple hour long conversation about this specific. I'm very fascinated with this uh, particular form of politics. Uh, it's been fascinating to me since Occupy Wall Street, which I think had prototypes of this form of politics of like community and fellowship building. And I think that's been there on the left in general and probably arguably in all dimensions of the political space. But it really feels like it's there's pressure there now because I think a lot of people see, at least in the US, that there's some kind of fundamental breakdown on the level of our culture and our ability to like listen to each other and just uh, pay attention in a kind way and just speak, mm. you know, like and humanize each other. That 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 perhaps a lot of what we see as a broken system has its roots in a broken, uh, you know, social fabric. And so, uh, really interested in this topic. But I also am aware that there are, you know, more. <laughs> that time is limited, and there are more political forms of politics. And I would like to let's so let's move on uh, to the empirical politics, or no, the existential politics, right? The politics of interdevelopment. Existential politics. Yeah. So we will present the four, the four next ones uh, somewhat more briefly. Um, the, the, the existential politics basically means the politics of the soul or the politics of how I personally relate to the universe at large. Um, and it, it might look like the last place in the world that politics should have anything to do. So um, it, uh, the, the way we classically think about politics and the modern view of politics is that politics is about the public realm. And then I have a private realm and the private realm is all to myself. But, you know, the moment you zoom out and you, you took, take the, the view of a social scientist, you realize that's not, that's not anywhere near the case. Uh, you are within a society and your relationship with two fundamental questions such as uh, the role of yourself in, in the universe and uh, and your idea about humanity or your ideas about nature at large or your uh, fundamental uh, love or bitterness towards reality and your ideas about God, for instance, and, and feelings about these things and uh, your subjective states. Um, these emerge in political contexts. These emerge in societal contexts and hence in political contexts because society is political. So again, we're stuck in the dilemma between, well, either we take the bull by the horns, excuse my speciest French, and we say, okay, the most intimate relationship that you have to existence itself we're going to call it political and we're going to try and make sure that as many as possible have uh, what could be thought of as good mm. generative conditions for independently developing a productive relationship to to mm. being itself or we're going to have to you know bury the whole issue and say well this has nothing to do with politics and we're going to leave it to nothing ever being said about the topic and it never being related to but nevertheless being present in every single political debate such as abortion for instance just to mention one um so i mean nothing is more political when you really look at it than than your fundamental relationship to reality itself and uh 
well so so what's what's in that fun- fundamental relationship well there there are many many parts of it but an existential politics would look at okay how, what what would an education of a normal person over 12 years look like does it include moments of silence moments of reflection moments of guidance does it have a plan for guiding the lost souls of modernity and the answer to these questions today is just emphatically no the the you're you're just kind of bombarded with this uh, modern world view and then left to your own devices to figure it out it's not all bad i mean some people figure out some things out but a lot of us are relatively lost and uh, uh, we can turn to religions but uh, these often don't uh, uh, don't really work in in uh, or sustain themselves and uh, or t- t- towards all of these uh, in in this in this larger context of, of uh, modern life and science mm-hmm. and all of that stuff so basically we can't escape the, the issue that people are going to have some kind of existential development and people are going to have some kind of uh, a relationship, fundamental relationship to life. And whereas it is not the role of politics to say what that relationship should be, it is the role of politics to figure out how to help us not become bitter, lost, confused, mad, Right. For instance, um, and uh, as things look today, we d- we're not even having that discussion. It's just way off the board, and it's just not on the table for what politics yes. is about, which is a shame, and it's um, and it leaves out some of the most fundamental questions um, about human life in general, and and of course one of the biggest sources together with a combined shop together with our relationships one of the biggest sources to human misery and or happiness so if we can figure out ways to improve the to or to develop the average relationship of self to self or of self to universe or universe in self then um, then we're going to have hit a gold mine i mean if uh, what would be most valuable uh, to people, if you could shower them with money, or you could help each of them to find a right. little more peace of mind, most right. probably a little peace of mind would go a very, very far away, uh, more so than a million dollars per person. Um, well, uh, if in developed yeah, countries, right, right, at right. least. So, uh, right, right, right. Uh, so, so if if you look at that that fundamental issue, it's just overlooked and it's thought of as uh, as the area of or or the the territory of religion or of just private choice and um and we really have no ways to tackle this or talk about it but there are actually you can you can research about this you can research about the fear of death for instance and you can see that okay if people do these exercises they get less anxious about their own mortality and this has any number of 
profound social psychological consequences throughout their lives. Well, so- that sounds interesting. Um, yeah. For instance, there's a book called "Worm at the Core," the "Worm at the Core," which builds on on the old uh, on the old psychology by uh, by uh, uh, well, the psychologist who wrote. Uh, uh, the denial of death. I don't remember his name at this moment. Um, but uh, what they have shown in many experiments is that uh, if you remind people of their mortality, uh, they cling harder to their convictions. They cling harder to identities. They cling harder to material wealth. And if you let people work through their fear of their mortality, these things, um, these things soften a bit. Uh, or if you make fe- people feel immortal or, uh, or uh, well, just uh, in, in, um, you make, make fe- invulnerable generally, then you will also see that people adopt greater openness to others, other perspectives, for instance. Uh, and I think these are very important findings. And uh, you can use mm-hmm. these findings and you can use them in political debates and you can also use them for designing many of our institutions. Um, mortality is there, and we talk about it so little. And um, uh, death is there, and we're all dying. Every day, a lot of people die, as, as many as are born. And we uh, it somehow is such a small part of our lives. Uh, it's so hidden away. And we there, there is simply a huge field here to develop yes. across hospices, across hospitals, across all, all walks of life. So uh, this would be an even subtler form of politics that would build on top of Gemeinschaft politics and would require even a more refined democratization politics. Yes, and one thing that uh, came to mind as you were speaking about um the denial of death and the relationship of death pieces, uh, the, 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 you know, Michael Pollan has been blowing up in the United States talking about and popularizing this uh, study where they gave, um, what are this, uh, you know, magic mushrooms to terminal cancer patients and it essentially resolved their fear of death and the anxiety that, you know, they, mm-hmm. they felt because of their near death and no other known kind of approach in the medical world did anything to even really touch that. You know, they could give them painkillers, but this kind of psychological disease, right? And if we start to, I mean, that just opens up a lot of questions, you know, um, it's another way in another example of how these questions are being forced, right? Like this is, I think this, what you're presenting is both like a theory, but I think it's also an observation of like, these are the times we're living in and, and whether we like it or not, you know, we're deciding mm-hmm. whether or not we're going to uh, make drugs legal because they relieve the fear of death. You know, that's a really interesting mm-hmm. question that we probably want to think super deeply about. And so, uh, again, just want to kind of yes. put that context of this is happening now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, without taking any hard stance on on the question of any particular legalization or uh, or so, we can just we can just look at the question from this particular standpoint. Uh, aha! If there was such a thing as develop as uh, as uh, existential politics, there would be a forum and a context for which from within which we could discuss these things. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe 
uh, well, some kind of conservative uh, uh, or uh, approach would be uh, clinics within which you could, after having gone through psychiatric trials uh, and uh, with the support of professional experienced uh, guides, you could take certain certain drugs and uh, you would receive all support before uh, during and after for instance for instance um and all of this is it depends on empirical research and empirical evidence and one to 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 one result or the other but the the fundamental idea that existence and our relationship to it itself is political and that we can create political contexts is is the idea of existential politics. Mm -hmm. And so we need to think about, before we do anything else, we need to think about growing that particular institutional framework. And we need to do it within the political realm. We need to find ways to talk about yes. these things. And I think, you know, these things kind of cascade on one another. Once you've talked about uh, democratization politics, you realize you land, well, what is democracy without our relationships? With What, what is society without right. society? Well, it's nothing without society. So we're going to have to figure out Gemeinschaft politics um, in, in order to improve uh, all of our ethnic and gender and everything else, so friendship relationships and neighbor relationships and whatever, class relationships. And then you go from there, say, okay, but what are our relationships with one another without our relationships to one ourselves, to, to ourselves? And that's where existential politics enter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it seems to take us very obviously to empirical politics. Like once we establish then that those are yes. the realms, then it's like, okay, well, how do we do this really? Right. I mean, or yeah. yes, yes. So let's let's go on. I mean, I, I know I, I feel like we could definitely I, w I would love to have a deeper conversation about the last two in particular. But um, let's let's finish up the last uh, three, at least and touch on them before we, we uh, uh, depart today. Yeah. So uh, so uh, empirical politics, then, uh, is in a way the most obvious one. Um, it, it there is such a thing as science and uh, pol policies can be more or less informed by them and it, it, by, by scientific results. And um, uh, there is also a politics to science. So this actually both goes both ways. It's both the science of politics and this politics of science. So uh, we're going to want the best possible scientific community to help us out find the truth. Uh, finding the truth and then we're going to want the best possible um the best possible scientific results informing our our scientific our, our political decisions so uh and of course our political decisions aren't reducible to those scientific results but uh without consulting what uh what can what couldn't be disproven through uh, through intersubjective falsification or, and or verification, then obviously yes. we're not on the right path. Obviously, we're if we're just doing guesswork, uh, then then things aren't going to turn out as we expect. So, and this goes ex of course especially for for the 
more subtle forms of politics that we have uh, talked about. So what if you and I decide to increase democracy and we say, well, from here on, uh, mm. there will only be direct democracy oh, and everybody will get to vote on everything. And it turns out, uh, once we've uh, once we've evaluated with the help of our friends, the scientists, uh, that in in actual reality, most people will feel less engaged in politics and will feel uh, more overwhelmed and will feel will have uh, less um, faith in the political process and the the decisions will be less intelligent and less uh, legitimate. Well. If that's the result, that's the result, and our whatever idealistic ideas we made up, we may have had about what we wanted to be true, maybe wasn't. So, uh, democratization politics must, of course, rely on empirical results. The same goes, of course, for Gemeinschaft politics. Can you increase the number of friends that kids have by doing this or that right. change to their education? Can you uh, increase? Can you decrease the hierarchical differences between winners and losers, for instance, in society? Uh, can you uh, increase the um, friendliness by which uh, gender relations and, and sexual relations, uh, uh, the, the friend, friendliness and respect with which uh, these relations uh, play out? Um, all of these are empirical questions, um, and without a very sound empirical politics, uh, well, especially when you get to existential politics, the first thing, well, the first time I gave a seminar on existential politics, do you know what happened? The place was taken over by people mm. who wanted to talk about astrology because they thought about existence and they thought about themselves mirrored in the stars and their lives in the stars. And they thought that politics should be informed by, by astrology and mm. they took over the discussion. Um, and of course, most people objected, but nevertheless, the, the the discussion didn't leave the room for the next for for the rest of the evening, and uh, th that's just one example where people. Well, if uh, if existence uh, existential politics is about stuff like meditation and and about stuff like relating to the self and about spirituality and higher states and lower states and and uh, counseling and these things, obviously. If we are, we're not helped by our friends, the sciences, then we're going to go down a really, really yeah. destructive path, a path of right. magic beliefs and, yeah. and wasted time and, and high expectation right. of religious cults and whatnot. Right. Which would likely have, you know, a, a rubber band effect and, you know, do something yeah. uh, horrible, like have us give up on the idea of engaging with this stuff thoughtfully at all. And so yeah. there, it sounds like to me that there's a way in which the idea of even having existential politics without it being grounded mm. in empiricism, uh, that's just a no-go. Yes, I, but there's a reason, though, empiricism shows up at this late stage, though. I mean, why didn't we put it first? Because it's, I mean, the the, the fact that something is true in itself doesn't make it legitimate. In, uh, in the social reality of, of human beings and our relationships, they always have to build upon what people actually share in terms of meaning. So, I mean... If, if if you emphasize only empirical politics, you get like a technocratic, distant society where people don't understand why these policies are good or not, and uh, where uh, some experts, in quotation marks, are going to tell others this is good for you because science says, and it will have no legitimacy and won't be grounded in in the real Gemeinschafts of people and the communities and, and their 
there, there's feelings and, and they won't be grounded existentially. So it actually comes at a relatively late stage then, the, the, the mm. empirical politics. And if you look at um, empirical politics, there is actually a relatively simple fundamental principle that guides it. It is we want to increase uh, the quality and extent of intersubjective verification throughout society. So uh, that, that's what science is. It is intersubjective verification. Well, so if I see a gargoyle or you don't, even if I can measure it and even if I can tell you its weight, if you don't see it and you can't measure it and, tell us and, and see the same weight uh, on, of that gargoyle, we're just going to have to assume that I'm crazy and there's no gargoyle. And uh, but but if everybody except you agrees with me that there really is a gargoyle and it really is uh, three foot long and and it weights uh, fifty pounds, then you're crazy and I'm not because my gargoyle and its measures were intersubjectively verified. And then, mm. of course, every. Science has layers upon layers upon layers of intersubjective verification. So the whole thing about pol the political realm in itself should be more subject to more efficient ways of verifying the facts or verifying knowledge or uh, and or falsifying knowledge. Um, and that should be the goal of... of, uh, of empirical politics. So it's not an either or. It's not just like, well, do you have an evidence-based study on that? Uh, uh, blind trial or whatever, double blind trial. Um, it's that, That's not the question. It's not an either or. It is a developmental question, a perpetual question of development. Mm. We can add layers upon layers of, of uh, intersubjective verification and this intersubjective verification becomes more and more complex the more politics travels into the inner realms into the souls of human beings uh, mm. it becomes more and more difficult to intersubjectively verify that let's say a minority has been subtly oppressed by a certain form of gemeinschaft or or uh, uh, existential politics uh, so well Without this growth into empiricism, uh, and uh, without uh, proper truthing, as it were, of society, we're not going to be able to develop a metamodern society. A metamodern society being defined as one that has resolved the three the three main issues of of modern society: that being uh, rampant inequalities and unsustainable development. And of course, alienation. Yeah, this I, I really appreciate um, the kind of uh, important distinction of that this is not a kind of uh, technocratic movement, but instead is is the tool of empiricism, which human beings have discovered in service of these deeper values and deeper kind of movements of the human heart and spirit. Right, that there can be a kind of coming together of these things and mutual. Uh, honoring and and uh, embracing of these things on behalf of humanity in general. I mean, that's just so 
I mean, that just saying that even like makes my entire body kind of vibrate with joy, you know, like that that's even a possibility. Well, I, I think it's, I mean, we're, we're a long way away from that stuff. But I think, though, these ideas are genuinely competitive. And if you put the first one into, if you put democratization politics into the political realm at the right place in the world system at the right moment in the right way, then the next one will follow and the next one will follow and we will be able to develop society in this direction. Uh, I'm not so sure about, uh, well, the actual prophecies, though. I mean, uh, things might very well crash within 50 years as things looks, look with climate change and especially as politics seem to be taking a, a really scary turn these days. Sure. But I, 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 what also comes to mind for me is, um, you know, I, I had a teacher, a meditation teacher of mine once say, uh, something like the, the door to the door, to the door, to the door is how you get there. Yeah. Right. And there's a kind of way in which you're setting up these portals that feed into each other that make, like we established at the beginning, like democratization politics, that's happening. Right, and mm. you can choose actually to see that in a bigger context that we're that this is being offered to you now, and and it and weave it into something insanely beautiful, right? Like maybe this brings you to life if you're listening oh. to this, and if it does, like go check out Maine's ranked choice voting ballot and see if other states, maybe the state you live in, uh, can start attempting to do that too. Yeah, and and I mean there there are naturally scholars around the world who who are specialized in democratization politics. They don't necessarily talk in these terms and they ne don't necessarily have the exact same theories I presented in the book. Uh, but they uh, they are experts on on looking at where all of these different things pop up. And when it comes to democratization politics, the bubble chamber is beginning to bubble a lot. Uh, so you have you have stuff yes. in it well across the nordic countries and in holland and you have stuff you have uh, at the eu level um digital uh, digitalizations of democracy you have uh, stuff in ireland you have stuff in the uk you have stuff in scotland you really have in california of course and then of course uh, within within uh, Switzerland, it's really all over the place and also in developing countries, actually. Uh, and I would like to mention before we go on that uh, all of these six forms of politics, or actually five of them, the last one, theory politics, hasn't begun to bubble yet. All of these uh, are, as it were, bubble chambers. So you find micro-movements. You find hmm. proto-meta-modern movements that will say these exact things, but they will only have grasped in one of the six dimensions. So that's why they mm. they cannot become the radical forces that they want to become, uh, because they don't coordinate all the six forms. So uh, so uh, for instance, you will you will have de democratization movements all across Europe, uh, things that work for for um, the development and and uh, radicalization of democracy. You will have more and more of them and they show up with a greater and greater frequency and and uh, and they resemble one another more and more so uh, and then you have the uh, gemeinschaft politics there there's so many initiatives that try to get people together in the civic realm and try to uh, reinfuse civil society with the with the uh, uh, feelings of of uh, solidarity and and uh, 
well, working with gender relationships and ethnic relationships mm-hmm. and and integration relationships and and so forth. Really, I mean, there, there's a lot of this stuff going on. And then if you go to the next one, uh, existential politics, there's even stuff. Well. Uh, there are networks uh, often around scholars, often around hospice work, uh, uh, spiritual politics. You you have that stuff as well, and it pops up and again and again, and people feel really inspired. But the reason it doesn't really uh, catch fire is, of course, because it's not coordinated with the other forms of politics, and it's not done in the mm-hmm. right order. Um, and also it's done without some of the tactics that we would need to talk about. So uh, the fifth form is uh, emancipation politics. I should probably uh, go- get onto that. Uh, we have mentioned then many different forms of politics, uh, four, four different forms of politics, three of which are potential oppressors. But even empirical politics can be, uh, can, as we said, be an oppressor. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what if you uh, feel oppressed by by let's say an existential policy, uh, politics policy so uh, uh let's say there's uh, there's a support of meditation at your workplace and you feel excluded because you don't really feel anything when your colleagues sit and they look serene and joyous and they they're they're uh well, they're excited about it and feel it's a privilege to have this kind of workplace at this kind of, uh, I don't know, bureaucratic mm-hmm. uh, workplace. And uh, and you you don't feel it. And then you object, and then there's empirical politics that says you're wrong and they're right. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. the, 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 mm-hmm. then you're even more oppressed. So uh, mm-hmm. what all of these four forms of politics open up is new and subtle forms of oppression so they're not oppression in the in the normal sense or in the modern sense they're oppression of a subtler kind they're oppression that will you know you know kind of creep in through the back door and creep in through the back of your mind and make you find feel subtly uneasy or subtly something will be very off and you won't be able necessarily even be able to name it and you will be maybe feel manipulated, used. Well, all of these are dangerous territories. So we're going to have to have a politics, a form of politics that defends your freedom and your integrity as an individual. I have written about the death of the individual in my book and, and you know, been uh, very vicious towards this category of the individual, but. That being said, nevertheless, in a, in a individual sense or in a in a transpersonal sense, we still we still need to have individual integrity and individual individual rights. We need to not be oppressed. We need to not be consumed by collectives. We need to be able to have our autonomy, and there's going to have to be a politics that that works specifically for that and for nothing else and without compromise will defend you against all of the bullshit people will pull on you Mm. and of course uh, this is a subtler form of politics than all of the others uh if you look at it really i mean how do you defend somebody from feeling oppressed by subtle things in you know their everyday societal life it's easy to help somebody 
or relatively easy to help somebody not to be oppressed by, let's say, an oppressive police force. But when it comes to this stuff, um, it's mm-hmm. uh, it, where do I begin and where do you end? Where is my integ- space of privacy and integrity? And uh, how does this not just become a wailing wall? How does, because everybody feels oppressed yeah. and everybody thinks everything is somebody else's fault. So without proper democratization politics, where we have a good talk about stuff, really, and without combined shop politics, where we have good relationships, without then empirical, pol- uh, without existential politics, where people can reflect upon themselves and uh, are aided in their personal development, and without uh, empirical politics, which break things down to measurable things, it's very difficult to imagine emancipation politics. But nevertheless, Mm. without emancipation politics, all of this is going to be a freaking nightmare. Mm. And uh, if you you imagine then a co-developmental party or a a metamodernist party, it would spread these ideas across this uh, this political spectrum. So if you look at, let's say, the libertarians, uh, and you would think about the libertarians in the the society that emerges or the uh, the heirs of the libertarians, this could, for instance, be their their favorite parts part of politics this could be a real house yes so so when things have gotten a little too icky for a while and people have voted for gemeinschaft politics let's say the heirs of the social democrats then for uh, for a while they'll have to vote for uh, the 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 heirs of the libertarians and and uh Mm. and get their autonomies uh, defended again i'm sorry uh, you wanted to say something oh yeah well something that uh comes to mind again just to add some a different kind of context is uh, another thing that a meditation teacher told me is that the journey of meditation is suffering less and noticing it more. Yes. And so what I hear you speaking on behalf of is this kind of like uh, princess with the pea pod sort of endless refinement situation where we're just like, you know, adjusting to new levels, perhaps hopefully of, of well-being and uh, empowerment and all these good qualities but then revealing the next layer of subtle, subtle suffering, subtle oppression. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, without these, I mean, how do we, how do we channel all of the resistances that are going to be, that are going to show up? And there, yes. there isn't an answer. The point is that none of these things have, have definitive answers there are processes and there are flows and with each one flow doesn't cancel out and balance another flow then we're going to be in trouble that's that's the idea Mm. Uh, so this is the whole the whole construct we're building is a kind of montesquieu 2.0 uh, so Montesquieu, of course, was the, mm-hmm. the tripartite division of powers um, of, of the modern project. So, okay, uh, you have a government, you have a parliament, and you have courts, and they, they're they not allowed to uh, trump one another. I, uh, obviously, the, the parliament can trump the government, but uh, but the government gets to rule and it gets to implement stuff. So, um, mm-hmm. so this kind of 
autonomy, which relative autonomy, you differentiate the different parts. And because you differentiate the different parts, they can be integrated into a greater whole, which then manages a higher complexity. Uh, that, that's, that's the fundamental idea here. And uh, what, when Montesquieu talked, he talked uh, about these three, this tripartite uh, division of power, he was talking about specific institutions what we are talking about and are is not actually specific institutions but something more abstract uh, we're talking about just general processes within society uh, all of which need to be defended and all of which need to be um, cultivated and created um, so so I mean the whole the, the complexity of this game is just one magnitude higher and uh, and more things can go wrong and now we have six dimensions to balance um mm. but other than that i mean it's it's difficult to say exactly what emancipation politics would be uh, because it's also at the farther end of, right. of uh, the metamodernist politics spectrum uh, it's uh, what would it be well let's say uh, there is a uh, emancipation politics uh, ministry uh, and it gathers all of the complaints where people feel oppressed in their lives and it feeds those that information back into the political process uh, which i mean would have to be much more refined data than if you look at uh, the happiness research uh, uh, surveys that that are there today they will ask you are you very happy rather happy not very happy or not happy at all in your life and then if you go to late modern countries 95 percent will say either rather happy or or very happy and if you just walk around in any country walk around in switzerland and you ask people and you look at them and you get to know people and you, you see that's not that's not remotely the case, obviously. So, I mean, we, you, uh, you're going to need a lot more refined data to get to these subtle oppressions. But these subtle oppressions are going to ha be very, very strong political forces, nevertheless. Uh, and they're going to be also oftentimes unconscious. So you're going to have to create a process that can that can handle these things. We're, we're diving deeper and deeper into the human soul and reorganizing and coordinating at the depth of the human soul. Mm. That is that is what the metamodernist project is, and that's what makes it so dangerous. But also why it's necessary because, uh, well, what what do you imagine? What, do you imagine that you're going to coordinate seven billion people with super complex technologies without? Uh, think without figuring out how we feel towards one another and how we talk mm. about the world and how we relate to one another and uh, how we govern ourselves. It's just not going to happen. Things are going to crash if we don't do these things. Um, yeah, so, so that's emancipation politics. Do you have any last words on that one, Daniel? No, it's it's beautiful. And, and um, yeah, it's just a lot of curiosity about what that will look like, what that could look like, how and 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 how to do that without creating uh, more subtle forms of oppression in the attempt to <laughs> decrease oppression. You know, it's just a very complex space. Yeah. That's that's yeah, and I mean, obviously, uh, we don't want politics and the political and the state, um, the state 
um, relationships, the citizen-state relationship, to be the central relationship in people's lives. We want it to kind of uh, recede into the background, and we want people to be free and uh, to collaborate freely uh, across borders and in networks of, of shared interests and common common ideas and ideals. Um, so, uh, so obviously. I mean, emancipation politics would be the counterforce that defends. Well, let's say, let's see, say uh, the 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 count the future counterpart of free enterprise and of the individual. So it's going to be the individual and the network, but it's going to be about not making life about politics. Politics is important, but life isn't about politics, mm. obviously. Uh, so, uh, and that's that's the, I guess the ultimate measure of freedom. If if your life can get to be about something else, if your life can get to be about creation, about art, about play, about love, and yeah, hey, that that that's the big totalitarian trap, you know. And you want to improve society so much, and then you make it all about politics, and everybody is about politics, and then. Before you know it, you're clapping hands to uh, to a big uh, spectacle about your nation having acquired nuclear arms. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it makes me. I, I was joking about this with a friend uh, just yesterday. That you know, part of why, or part of why I'm so concerned with the pol- the realm of the polit- political, is so that I can have a future where I can feel like just ch- fine to chill and like use virtual reality and like create and you know just enjoy mm. life right i don't feel like i can do that right now mm. because shit is on fire but like it would be really sweet to imagine mm. a future in which we yeah could. and i mean and this obviously goes back to to marx he also said well the uh, uh, state should fall back and and it should decay and people should just be free and then in, in reality of course real socialism turned out to be the exact opposite uh, it was just the state swelling until it got into your living room and licked your toes. And, uh, well, Mm -hmm. metamodern politics can go the same way. And we need to think from day one and be very clear about what, what the goals are. The goals aren't to make everybody stuck in a, a, well, in some kind of, uh, nightwear Maris version of a future China. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's of course uh, deeper freedom or higher freedom and deeper equality. Those those are the goals. Naturally, uh, we talk about this uh, in the book also, of course. Um, so the last one, I guess, um, should should get onto that. Uh, that's uh, empirical. Oh, I mean, I'm sorry. It's uh, politics of theory, and uh, uh, it's it's synonymous uh, in this context with politics of narrative. And it is the most radical form of metamodern politics, and it is also the most controversial one and the most dangerous one. And it is the politics about how everybody is brainwashed. So it is the conscious and deliberate discussion, democratically held transparent discussion about how to brainwash the population or within which multiplicity to brainwash the population and uh this uh of course the other other terms should be should be used um but to to just speak plainly uh this is what it is if you look at any modern society today 
and you look the, at the extent of the brainwashing machine, it is humongous. Uh, I mean, it's uh, just, okay, look at all of the laws about what you're allowed to say and you're not, and look at uh, the educational system. It will tell you a certain story from a certain perspective, uh, this will be a humanist perspective in modern countries and will be an anthropocentric cons- uh, perspective and a materialist perspective. Uh, and uh, there is no discussion about this in any modern country. Uh, it's just taken for granted that this is an education and this is the truth and this is what should be said and this is what children should learn. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you will have people... Um, resisting this in in uh, often in a traditionalist direction so you will have maybe i don't know uh mu- muslim schools or that will teach children uh, or christian schools that will teach children more traditionalist values and more uh, fundamentalist interpretations of the, their respective religions um but that's actually the only real challenge to to the the major paradigm about of how everybody is brainwashed and everybody gets the same worldview roughly even though for instance if you look at history uh, education uh, you uh, you get roughly the same story and uh, a, there's also going to be some nationalist elements to that story whereas you might easily imagine and you see already in the progressive countries you see uh, this story being challenged but well let's say a gendered and a, a ecological uh, history or uh, but you also have the emergent uh, the emergent discipline of big history which tells the history of the of nature and life and humanity on the on one and the same scale and uh, and weaves it all together in a big story yeah. in a global story and you also have the discipline of global history which doesn't just study the many histories of world history but studies the global world system as a, as a global system and we have no political debate about whether or not for instance global history and big history should be on the curriculum instead of well natural mainstream non-theoretically driven history it's just one out of many, many uh, applications mm. of uh, politics of theory. So everybody gets this worldview, and there is no debate present in any of these societies yes. that look upon themselves as rational societies. And, well, obviously, this is a problem. And as if society changes and if the norms change, or I mean the, the, the conditions of life change, but our norms don't change and we have no, um, no way of uh, quickly addressing the, the changing circumstances because society is going to change quicker and quicker with the, with the, with the technological advancement. And uh, we're going to have to, change our norms and worldviews faster and faster. We're going to have to switch worldviews maybe once or twice in a generation. And as things look today, there are mm-hmm. n- there's nothing remotely in that area of, of institutional frameworks for, for even discussing such things. We just pretend that everybody made up their mind freely, but they didn't. 
uh, everybody was brainwashed into a certain worldview and uh, there's no debate about it. And even if somebody, if somebody tries to bring up another suggestion, then they look like the control freak uh, because uh, the, the status quo is, uh, mm-hmm. is taken for granted, so, as it were. The one way I'm, I'm kind of hearing what you're saying is that there's a kind of current monoculturing of our sort of shared epistemology where we kind of assume or imagine that the story that the mainstream story is the story. Um, and I heard recently somebody say something like, uh, if your aim is collective liberation, you cannot be an essentialist. AKA like you cannot think that human nature mm-hmm. is one way humans are one way or mm-hmm. any identity for that matter is one way. And so it, it, that, mm-hmm. you know, it it is perhaps one of the most controversial things you can say out loud if you really think about it because it contradicts the belief of anything at all being the way it is uh you know mm-hmm. truly and not just as a result of circumstances and perceptions actually i should mention then uh, that in another conversation i had just uh, recently with tom amark and it was also published uh, online um, the, the, he asked me about what, how do you notice an embodied metamodernism? And the first dimension I brought up, I brought up five or six, I believe, uh, was just this resistance to essentialism. Uh, and you can see as anti-essentialism grows with, uh, with, uh, with development and, uh, the metamodern mind, if it has one whole mark, the first that came to my mind was, uh, was, this uh, that you pick things apart, you understand that things aren't essential, and that you can always reconstruct them, um, and that your view of the of the thing isn't the actual thing. So, uh, it, wh- why is this so controversial? Well, obviously, you're saying then that well, I want some ideas that I find preferable to be put into institutions and put into frameworks and replicated and spread to the minds of other people i want to make myself the master of what happens in another person's brain and that nothing could be more megalomanic or power hungry or control freaky than that and nevertheless mm-hmm. uh, that's what society is already doing without any democratic deliberation about it so what I'm saying is rather than just putting a lid on it and saying, shut up, control freaks, we're saying, okay, let's hear it, control freaks. Let's hear your control freak versus yours versus yours versus that guy's and that woman's. And let's find out what the best balance might be when when everything is up in the air. And we'll see where it falls and we'll see where it lands. Uh, mm. Given naturally <laughs> that we have already developed a deeper democracy and that, that it's ongoing and better relationships and supportive uh, structures for for self uh, for self observance and so forth and empirical politics and emancipation politics and then we get to the gist of it to uh, to uh, theoretical politics politics of theory. And why is politics a theory the, the, the epitome of metamodern politics? Well, 
it is because it is at this point, as I said in early in the interview, it is at this point that humanity becomes politically aware of itself as a social creation or as a so, so or, or as a social construction so uh, rather than us being ruled by the social constructions we begin to consciously redesign the social constructions and the social constructions of course also reconstruct us so that we can reconstruct the social constructions uh, and of course this uh, this pattern was observed already by the early social constructionists back in uh, the early 60s and so forth uh, but um, they didn't propose to put this at the center of um, of humanity's self uh, self organization, and that's what we're looking at. We're looking at yes. an, an autopoesis, a self organization of mm-hmm. culture itself. Uh, so, it, uh, an image for this is the Euroboros, for instance, a, a, a snake biting its own tail, um, or another vision of it is fractality. You zoom in on any part of the fractal the same principles show themselves and you see ever new patterns and you explore yourself you zoom in on yourself and you recreate yourself um and uh th- that would be then the difference i mean uh th- that would be what corresponds to the enlightenment of uh, the natural sciences of the, of the modern project that the modern project was about well well, here am I, man, in quotation marks with a big M, looking out on nature with a big N, with an N, and and then you know, looking in Francis Bacon's uh, Novum Organum, using the method and recreating nature to suit man, and then that this process grows, and eventually we recreate everything. If I look around myself right now, three hundred sixty degrees, everything in my eyes i don't have any uh any uh, plant at the moment because uh well it died a while ago and um but any everything within 360 degrees of what i can see is man-made we recreated the environment and likewise then the next step would be to recreate culture and to do so in a conscious way um and uh then that would be uh the, the beginning of the metamodern society, and uh, that's why metamodern society can resolve the modern, uh, the modern issues because these are cultural issues or uh, psychological issues, and there is of course a fundamental connection between this and the level of technological attainment that uh, late modern societies and beginning metamodern societies have uh, have uh, uh, achieved, and it has to do with of course, with the recreation of life, uh, I don't support. Uh, uh, I don't support almost any um, animal uh, animal um, experiments. But uh, just to mention one such uh, clearly unethical one, but interesting, is what they have. Um, they just uh, recently injected human brain cells or uh, human neurons into the brain of rats. And the rats became more intelligent, more human-like. And that's just one of many, many, many examples with which we are recreating life itself. We're also using flesh, uh, muscle muscle cells to create computation, uh, which is actually proving more efficient in some ways than uh, than, uh, uh, conventional 
computation. And uh, well, there there are any number of ways within which we approach this, and of course, genetic manipulation um, and and CRISPR. CRISPR uh, is, is is a huge revolution where this is put in the hands of so many laypersons and lay biologists. And I mean, so if we're going to recreate uh, consciousness itself, we're going to recreate well humanity and and the creatures that live here and we redesign the the ecological systems we're already doing that on a major scale then i mean if our our grasp of the natural environment has gone so far that we create recreate the the sources of consciousness itself we're also going to have to recreate the cultural logics by which such life creating or consciousness creating technologies is are exerted uh, or by or their power by which their powers are exerted so uh, so these things kind of match there's a symmetry here well, once technology hasn't reached this level we're going to have to have a self-conscious recreation of culture itself um and uh, and it's a race against the clock really because if too crude uh, cultural logics would rule such powerful technologies, uh, hell will ensue. It's uh, it's almost, well, it's very clear to me anyway. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're almost certainly doomed in that situation. And it's, uh, I, I haven't thought of it this way, but it's, it sounds almost like that uh, the metamodern society has reached a kind of cultural singularity that perhaps we might even... Uh, kind of compare and contrast or look at in relationship to the kind of technological yes. singularity that people often speak about, which I often find lacks humanity. It lacks uh, reality. It just doesn't feel very much like something I actually want particularly. Uh, whereas the kind of singularity, if we can call it that, that you're talking about is something that personally I'd be willing to die mm -hmm. for. You know, and it's it's a very real, like moral, if you see the, or for me, if seeing the beauty of that possibility, it like calls forth my mm. life, you know, my yeah. action and, you know, kind of speaking on behalf of my mon monastic training, but really it's like, it's a beautiful mm. vision to me. Well, uh, uh, I I think it's, uh, it, it can turn ugly. To me, it's also beautiful if I look at it, but uh, it can easily turn ugly, but I really don't see we have any choice i mean we we have to like i i see yeah. like steep uh well a, a steep abyss on the one side and a steep abyss on the other side and this is the thin path that we have uh that i can see uh to walk and uh um and of course, mm -hmm. uh, people are going to have different roles on in this one. Some some are going to actually develop this uh, technology. Some some are going to try and uh, develop the context for certain technologies, such as blockchain, such as uh, artificial intelligence. Um, but uh, for us who are social scientists and, and philosophers of society um, and social psychologists, I, I think this this path is uh, is the important one uh, to to develop the frameworks and the political discourse that can actually contain uh, these uh, these other dimensions. Um, so, uh, and it's a popular belief these days that I would like to, um, I'd like to, um, that I don't agree with, uh, and I would like to criticize is, is that, oh, technology is going to be so, so 
powerful and the markets are going to be so powerful and the networks are going to be so powerful, we don't at all need to think about the political. Well, uh, it, it might be mm. true if the political is successful in developing and updating itself, it, it will recede and it will fall into the background and we will be able to focus on, well, technology and science and arts and well, it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, but if the political doesn't work uh, and it doesn't mm. get to update our culture and we have no frameworks for doing so, well, uh, all of these things are just going to uh, to turn on us and and uh, explode in our hands, or and it's not going to be fun at all, uh, as as I see it. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Hansi. For I too see this abyss on either side, and I, I see what you're pointing to as a very elegant. And I think you're right, like fraught with danger, but nonetheless, only available seemingly path ahead of us, which seems to mean that we're going to walk it in some way, shape or form. So I appreciate uh, your willingness to unfold this uh, in public. I appreciate your willingness to develop it, to think through this kind of thing so that, you know, the next travelers can really work on some aspects. We can see a little bit further ahead and, you know, the work can continue. So thank you very much, Hansi, for coming and, and sharing this. Well, and and thank you. And uh, in case anybody sees any other uh, uh, political paths pathways, uh, well, I mean we're all ears. So it's it's uh, to to uh, the meta modernist as we as I write in the book. It's uh, listening to a stranger is the highest form of jihad. It's a holy war, uh, but the holy war consists of. Uh, taking in perspectives and uh, taking in as many perspectives as you can before you die and coordinating them successfully and coordinating them on each on their own terms. So if anybody has other pathways, we're all ears. So we, it's just a warning uh, as a last word, not to get monolithical about this, uh, just because we happen to see path Right, because we could get easily fucked by not knowing what we needed to know when we needed to know it. So uh, adaptation for the win. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, Great. exactly.